Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today we are back with a slightly early edition of Reviewing the News. Cody and I actually recorded this conversation this past Wednesday, May 24th, since Cody had to take off on yet another mountain adventure. And actually he has two different mountain adventures and so we needed to record it Wednesday or it wasn't going to happen, I don't know, till like early 2026 or something like that. I can't remember. But the good news here is that this is a really good episode. We touched on a lot of very interesting topics, and you'll see how there was some yin and yang potentially going on in this episode. And then, you know, since Cody missed last month's reviewing the news, and we didn't do any succession talk, well, we got a lot of it for you here today. But keep in mind... Cody and I recorded this this past Wednesday, May 24th, so this was well before the last episode of Succession came out. So if you are all caught up except for the very last episode, don't worry about it. There's no spoilers because, you know, the episode wasn't out. But Cody and I definitely have a lot to say about the show And I am, well, certain that we're going to have a lot more to say about the show on our next Reviewing the News 2, taking into account the final episode. Now, just before we get going here, big important reminder that early bird pricing for our upcoming Blister Summit ends this Thursday, June 1st. The Blister Summit is right here in Mount Crested Butte, our home base, The dates are February 4th through the 8th, 2024, and when you come, you will get four days of skiing and riding on new for next year gear at Crested Butte Mountain Resort, and there will be guided backcountry tours, daily restorative yoga, opera sessions with free drinks and food, a bunch of the athletes and product designers that you hear on the Blister podcast and perhaps writing for our open mic series and you hear them on Gear 30. And you can go ski and ride with all of these people and you're going to meet a bunch of cool new people at this event too. I feel very confident in saying that because I keep hearing more and more about the cool connections that are made each year at the summit. So don't miss out on the best price of the year for the Blister Summit and start planning your dream vacation now. We'll include a link in the show notes of this episode for registration and discounted accommodation details. And you can also just go to our website and find all the info about the event there. It's going to be a great one and we want you to be there. And now, Let's review some news with Cody Townsend. Here we go. Well, Cody, you're back. We missed you last month. I got to say, though, man, Len stepped in 
and just I think had a triple double. You know, like he he came in hot and he came in he came in and, and and brought something to the table for our last review in the news. So shout out to Len and and thank you for for coming off the bench like that. But you know, we're happy to have you back. It's been a minute. I was definitely of all the casual replacements, the off the bench players to step in for my place. The most worried <laughs> I had was Len stepping in. Definitely gave me the most worry. I'm like, yeah. dude, he's like one of the smartest, most articulate, well-read people I know. Like, damn it, this guy's definitely like, I'm going to be relegated to the bench after this guy steps on. Yeah, that's like, you're like, oh, I'm sorry, this thing came up. I'm not going to be able to make our, our City League game. And so then we bring Michael Jordan off the bench and we're like, no, we're good. We're good, man. If you have other things come up, it's fine. Yeah, n- next week too. Like, we're good. <laughs> I know you're busy. You know, you got a lot of stuff going on. This yeah. this new guy, he's 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 filling in well. You know, he's up there. So, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. yeah, I know. I'd, uh, I listened to it and I was like, damn it, Len. Stop being so smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a really fun one. Also reminds me that... Uh, in the introduction for that last reviewing the news, you were currently like in the thick of it. And I believe I even did a kind of Ferris Bueller's esque, like, hey, everybody listening, like, we need to pray for Cody. And and I think the prayers worked. Cause it sure seems like things turned around pretty significantly for you on your last little adventure. Yeah, that was that was a few stressful days. Some of the probably more stressful days I've ever had in my life in terms of going on and planning for almost two years what ended up being the single most expensive trip I've ever done in my entire life and watching it dissolve before my very eyes because of lost baggage specifically lost skis out of for three people out of the six people in our entire crew um we had three people in filming and then i was sharing kind of logistics and costs and camp with uh two buddies and another guy so um watching it dissolve before my very eyes and watching weather delays and just just the whole thing you're like we have sunk so much money into this already have so much deposits down i was just like this is a nightmare but the prayers might have helped, but there was also one morning where I was just like, I have to do everything in my power to try and locate these bags and get them to us. And you know what the trick that worked was? Emailing the CEO of Air Canada and getting hearing back from him within 10 minutes and having pretty much the entire executive staff of Air Canada just like jump at it. And it was just because, I don't know, I wrote it. I like literally emailed every person I could. I was calling pilots. I was calling flight attendants. I was calling like airport staff. I was just like, look, like this entire expedition is at jeopardy if these bags don't get it here. So, and it wasn't only that there, and then there was weather stuff and all this other stuff, but uh, yeah. Um, I will say though, it ended up being amazing. It was ended up being worth every penny of the most expensive a trip of my life because the, the conditions were all time. The place is just one of the most mind blowing places you could ever lay eyes on. And, um, the crew was all time. I know. I think if you follow me on Instagram, 
scene. I've been kind of telling about the story, but like uh, going there with Vivian Bruchet, who in my opinion is uh, one of the best, if not the best, steep skier slash ski mountaineer in the planet, who um, is renowned for all his like first ascents and gnarly Chamonix descents and whatnot. But he also just happens to be an amazingly good person. And so like, we just had a ton of fun. We were able to ski some incredible lines. We were able to ski some very kind of fucked up Viv style lines, as I would call them, <laughs> like some mixed climbing, a lot of rappelling, um, you know, whether they were first descents or not, I don't know. Um, we've kind of tried to figure it out. It seems like they might've been, doesn't really matter to me more. It was like this experience of skiing these like crazy complex lines with tons of exposure and uh, really steep, really narrow, doing like M4, M5 mix climbing to get up it and just like watching Viv be just an incredible person through like a mountain man that just like can move through mountains like no one I've ever seen was, it was a joy. And so ultimately it all worked out. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a roller coaster because you were like, dude, this is like the worst. And then I checked in with you and you're like, oh yeah, no, best trip of my life. <laughs> I was like, yeah. well, that that took a turn. It did. It really took a turn. Glad it worked out. Yeah, me too. Glad you made it back and happy to have you back on reviewing the news. And man, we've got, we got quite a bit to talk about today. So we should probably dive in. The first thing I wanted to talk about was an article written in a semaphore newsletter and I just checked the link again and I we will post this link and I think it will take people to to this article. It, I think it's really worth reading, but it's called the the case for climate optimism. And this is written by I think it is it's Tom and I think it's pronounced Chivers Shivers um C H I V E R S. But um you know, I think like sometimes we need to come in and there are new findings that are not particularly happy and it's important to communicate and understand what scientists are saying. But I also think that when there are just facts uh, that maybe are reason for optimism and show that there is a capacity to move the needle, that certain things are getting better, it's important to point those things out too. So I'd like to just read a short section um, from this article, and then I really encourage people to check out the full, the full article. But uh, Tom writes, there are lots of good news stories about climate change which don't get the attention they deserve. Things really have moved in the right direction. That last sentence is maybe a bit more debatable, but as evidence, he says, one of my very favorite examples is the graph showing the cost of solar panels. Back in 1975, each watt of additional solar capacity cost $100. By 2010, that was less than a dollar. Now it's 27 cents. Current solar prices are way below what IPCC models predicted they would be in 2050, and the price of lithium-ion batteries per kilowatt hour, meanwhile, fell by 97% between 1991 and 2018. They're also longer-lasting and higher capacity than they used to be. 
So the article goes on and, and brings up a number of other elements like this, where it's like, you know, I think to counteract, it's something that you and I talk about, Cody, but there is nothing beneficial about simply saying like, well, we're screwed, we're done, we're done for, right? If statistics and data push you into kind of paralysis or depression rather than action, then, well, we've just moved, like we've completely given up. And, and again, it's not productive. And I think that articles like this are a good reminder that incremental improvements over time can add up. And I'll stop talking. Thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I think it's really good to have uh, these articles out there and occasionally put them out into the media world. Because like, as I think we've spoke about um, many times before, but media sells bad news. And that's not because media is out there to tell you everything's bad. That's because you people click on it. Like that's, you know, it's like there's this old maxim in a newsroom. If it bleeds, it leads. And it was essentially being like front page A1. If there's murders and blood, then that's going to be on the front page. Um, so and that's because people through their data pick up that newspaper and read that article. And these days they can track that even better with digital media. So people gravitate towards reading bad news. So this, when it comes to climate, can be a thing where every article is talking about the despair of, of climate change and can be focused on all the negatives. It can be focused on like, hey, we're not meeting our goals. The IPCC report says we're way behind and the, the future, we're, we're completely fucked, essentially. So um, it's good reminder to look at the good news. Um, what is it? The old like Mr. Rogers thing of like, you know, when there's tragedy in news media, when there's tragedy that's on like a TV news broadcast, uh, it reminded the person to always look for the people helping because there's always some sort of good, you know, like if there's a, a car crash, you'll see in the background of some sort, like the people stopping, jumping out of their cars to help. And it's always like, we tend to focus on the negative, but it's good. Um, it reminds me of this book um, that I read called Factfulness by Hans Ro Rosling. Uh, a Swedish um, Swedish professor, and the whole book was based upon this like very Hobbesian or Rousseauian philosophy of like a lot of people think the world is getting worse, and um, he presents all this data, um, these polls, and these things about like hey, poverty is getting worse, violence is getting worse, all these like very kind of macro. Um, topics of the world getting worse and then he presents the data like no it's actually getting way better um so it's that same sort of thing was like we need to sometimes we we tend to focus on the negative when we need to focus on the positive so it's good to read this and yeah to be like all right let's let's keep it up let's keep moving forward hmm. Hmm. check out that article and um yeah keep keep making steps let's keep making steps where do you want to go next to the ski season. Um, since the ski season is mainly wrapped up for a majority of the ski areas in the, the United States and in North America, except for Tahoe, because we still have tons of snow. It's ridiculous. Like, I tried to go for a trail run yesterday, and I'm just, like, in my backyard at 6,000 feet. It's, like... <laughs> 
covered in snow and mud and i'm like the the it's got it we got another month before like the meadows are melted out not let alone the actual like alpine like mountain biking is going to start in like august this year (laughs) but uh what's the latest in terms of what palisades is saying for being open or closing dates what what's their current schedule do you know so the schedule's a little wonky. Um, they're going back and forth between Alpine and Palisades opening. Um, they but they're open. Palisades has been like almost full time open until this weekend, and then Alpine is going to be the one that's open. And the the irony of it is that Alpine will be open till July fourth, and usually Palisades is actually a better mountain for late spring skiing, a little higher, more Alpine terrain. Um, but they have these construction projects that were booked out like five years ago to happen at this exact same time. And so it just happened to match up of being like one of the biggest winters in history, right on a year where they booked construction. So Palisades isn't going to be open, um, except for maybe the weekends. I, I don't know exactly, but Alpine will be open until July 4th, which is incredible. Um, and I would say like the skiing is still good. Like we've uh, skied a few days this week and it's like, Oh, yeah. Still fun. Still, the mountain is still incredibly filled in. It is not getting thin at all. And we're almost at the end of May. So, um, so yeah, um, skiing is still good up here, but, um, in terms of the ski area, the ski season, uh, 2023 um, was the set a record for record visitation for North American ski areas. Um, actually, specific to U.S., this article is. So this comes from Ski Area Management. Uh, headline is U.S. Ski Areas Set New Record for Skier Visits. Uh, total of 64.7 million skier visits, which was a 6.6% increase over last year's record. So all I can say to sum that up is skiing's really popular and it keeps growing. Um, there's a lot of commentary I would have in regards to the ski industry, ski business and whatnot, but when I keep it focused to like ski areas and mountain towns, I just want to ask you one question. Is this a good thing? <laughs> Why, yes, Cody, it is. Next topic. <laughs> good talk. Let's go. Yeah, good talk. Before we get to the yes or no of that, it is interesting. I mean, you just kind of quickly hinted at it, but I think we do this thing. There's a lot of talk, you know, in the industry of like, well, nobody really skis or what are we doing here? The sport is on a decline. And then stats like this, it's like, what, what is, I, I can't, um, I'm not making the claims work or I'm not sure. I mean, right. Do you agree with this? First of all, I don't even know what you call it. If it's industry talk or whatever, but it's like, oh, you know, um, we're really worried about, uh, you know, the health of skiing as an industry, certainly with respect to climate change. I mean, there is an existential threat on that front. But other than that, like we just saw last two years, at least in the U.S., there's never been more skier visits. 
Where where is this coming from? I, I mean, I think it, we're we're seeing the obviously this shift to outdoor sports in general becoming more popular. Um, and what that is, I don't know. Why is that trend? Is it you know, is there you know there's a point in the fashion industry when like kind of what they call it like granola core or gorp core was becoming popular, where like people in New York City are wearing like outdoor stuff. So is it like you know just the outdoors show? more interest in very popular culture is the business models more meeting up to the average everyday skier um is there just something else going on with the work environment i don't know why it's necessarily getting more popular but ultimately we can say skiing is quite popular and continues to grow uh i'll kind of actually start off with the answer though my own question of is it a good thing and you know like everything I say here, uh, there's always, it's never black and white. And there's always a lot of gray. I would say overall, yes, it's a good thing. And all the problems that we are seeing in mountain towns and ski areas and the ski industry are based on peripheral issues you know the when you, you we've got a new business model for ski areas and i think that is increasing the popularity of the sport but the the those have side effects and the towns and the ski industry needs to adapt to that for instance like in the ski industry the early 2000s were the peak for ski sales you know i think it was around like 9 million skis uh, pairs of skis were sold worldwide in early 2000s for one year um i forget the exact year i forget the date i used to have it now as of i, I remember at least four or five years ago, it's around 2 million pairs of skis. So like a 7 million pair decrease in units of ski sales. That's pretty, it's pretty hard to operate a ski business in that sort of environment, but they're adapting to it. Um, and I think they're adapting better to it. Um, you know, that means shifting more into rental business. That means shifting into different sort of price points. That means what we're seeing in the ski industry, you talked about it on, um, on the uh, gear 30 is like, you know, you were saying as a problem of this, like every two years, the, the skis shift and they change. Well, in the early 2000s, it was every year. It was like every year was a new pair of skis, a new thing, a new model. And I feel like they're stretching that out more and more. Like the QST lineup and the Solomon line has been here for like 10 years now. And sure, the 106, their like kind of bread and butter ski has changes every few years. But in my lifetime with that ski, which is now 10 years, there's been three changes. And but it's ultimately still kind of a very similar ski. So I think when it comes to this question of is it a good thing yes but towns um ski areas ski industry they just we need to adapt to this new market mm -hmm. well certainly you know and and it's like yeah and that's always the case like every everything always needs to be adapting if we if we just read an article that said we just had the lowest number of ski visits in history. Well, then guess what? Everything needs to adapt and adjust. And so in a way, there's just a kind of a, there's an obviousness to that. Doesn't mean that there aren't real problems attached and things we need to, to solve. Um, and, and at that point, you hope that all of the relevant parties and players do their part. 
you know? And yeah, we're talking then about ski areas themselves. We're talking about the towns where those are located. We're talking about, you know, the entities that are selling um, these sort of mega passes. Like everybody has to adjust. There needs to be good communication and like a sincere willingness to work together on these fronts or we just will have certain problems become bigger problems. And we know that mountain communities, it's a delicate enough ecosystem that just introducing, you know, certain overloads on a system won't just sort of be okay. Right. Yeah. 100%. And, you know, I guess we can kind of move into this next topic on reviewing the news because this is almost like the counter argument or an argument we've discussed here a lot. Um, this comes from High Country News. Um, and the headline is Western Resort Towns Risk Being Loved to Death. Uh, new report details the downsides of tourism and population booms and what communities can do about it. So this is like the counter argument that being like, no, it's not necessarily a good thing. Um, I'll, I'll read this, this first paragraph pretty quickly, but beautiful places tend to become popular destinations for tourists and outdoor recreationists. Visitors tell their friends and post pictures on social media and businesses that serve those visitors, bars and restaurants, hotels, gear stores proliferate. Soon people with financial means start moving up, driving up housing prices and reducing available stock. Unable to handle the popular influx, infrastructure begins to crumble, while local government finds itself unable to pay for needed repairs. So we've we've discussed this argument that obviously when it comes to mountain towns right now, there's a lot of struggles, and it mainly has to do with housing and workforce employment. Um, the, the main thing I kind of wanted to talk about here, which this article brings up, is kind of that tax basis uh, argument. So um, I'll say... Like, I'll ask you this question. One, you living in Crescent Butte, are the roads in the construction an absolute disaster right now? <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to say no. You know, maybe we're about to see a season of construction really start, but currently, no, I think is the, the general answer to this. Yeah, how about in your neck of the woods? It's an absolute disaster. I'm like landlocked at my house when it comes to traffic right now. You know, we, and there's a good reason. We had a giant winter and there was a lot of people up here. So the roads are absolute, like in catastrophic state. Like there are, there are cones that are put in the middle of potholes and the cones are half deep. Like these potholes are two and a half to three feet deep in places. And so there's like, you drive around to the lake right now and it's people swerving, like crossing into the other lanes to avoid these potholes and they're trying to fix them, um, which is absolutely necessary because it's like absolutely beyond dangerous driving on these roads right now. But when it comes to this like tax basis argument um, and this adaptation, like we, it was a combination of a ton of cars and really bad weather, really wet, snowy weather that has destroyed the roads here. It's feels terrible. It's like all winter we're dealing with traffic with so many people here. And then all of a sudden, okay, 
whew, we got spring, we got a time to relax. There's a before the next influx of business uh, of, I mean, uh, next influx of tourists come. But like, meanwhile, it takes me 20 to 30 minutes to drive two miles any direction outside of my house because of, of we're dealing with the repercussions of that. And it's got me thinking of like, Knowing that, you know, where I live in Tahoe City is an unincorporated district. We're part of Placer County. Placer County stretches from the Sierra all the way down to the Sierra foothills to the west being Auburn and Roseville. Some of my, like, readings in the past have shown that, like, the Tahoe is the kind of bread and butter financial supply of Placer County, yet 80 cents of every dollar from our tax basis up here goes down to Placer County. So it almost feels like we are dealing with the repercussions of not like investing in infrastructure like roads, like the roads in front of my house, the, they've been filling potholes every summer for the last decade, but they've never actually like upgraded the road. And this article goes into one something that's pretty interesting is saying uh, in Bozeman, Montana, uh, a 3% sales tax on non-essential goods there, including lodging, would raise $30 million each year in revenue and shift some of the cost onto tourists, easing the divide between funding needs and tax burden. Parentheses, Bozeman cannot currently do this under Montana law, which was the most shocking part of it um, to me. And it's going to this adaptation of like, local governments are dealing with this in a lot of different ways. And I feel like local governments are a lot of ways to potentially blame for what we're seeing in mountain towns, the, uh, you know, the lack of housing, crumbling infrastructure, yet as ski area management writes it, record visitation to these mountain towns. So I, uh, I don't know what, what is your experience in Crescent Butte? Because you seem you like you had some antidotes and obviously you're not having the construction ridiculousness that we are having here. What's, what's your experience? Yeah. I, I mean, man, I, I gotta say, honestly, I feel like we have some, it's nice to be able to say this because I don't feel like we get to say this a lot in sort of American politics or when we're talking about leadership, I think we have some really sharp people up and down the Gunnison Valley who are working to address these things. And, you know, I will give a shout out to Jonathan Hauk, to Troy Russ, to Dara McDonald. We've had Troy was on uh, the Mountain Town Economics podcast series that we did a while back um, at this past Blister Summit of ours. We did a panel session, again, just titled Mountain Town Economics to kind of revisit these topics. Um, Jason Blevins, our guy, hosted that panel session. Um, Dara McDonald, Crested Buttes Town Manager, was on that. Jonathan Hauk, um, Gunnison County Commissioner, was on that. Um, Pete Wagner, kind of weighing in about what he's seeing in Telluride. And then our reviewer and our mutual friend, Paul Forward, was talking about sort of the situation in Girdwood, Alaska. But I mean, Jonathan and Dara are talking about incredibly smart systems that I, I highly encourage people to go watch that panel session on YouTube. But this was some of the most sensible, some of the most hope-inducing talk about 
policy initiatives that would just completely move the needle. You know, and so if since the question was, what are we seeing around the Gunnison Valley? I'm like, if these folks are implement, it, it was some of the smartest stuff I've heard. And so, you know, I think while there are some issues in the Gunnison Valley, like you mentioned in Bozeman, it's like, yeah, well, they can't legally make certain changes or implement certain taxes. Well, then you have to have systems of how do you get around that? Can votes be held to overturn, right, previous laws and policies, et cetera? But around here, I think there is reason to be optimistic, right? And you have to have smart leadership, people that can articulate these things. And then there need to be residents who understand the issues, will are willing to go vote for these things, show up to vote, right? And get these changes implemented. So honestly, I guess I find myself more on the optimistic side of the spectrum. If you said 10 years from now, do I think we will be in more of a fiasco when it comes to mountain towns in general? If we're continuing to see, you know, people digging on the outdoors and skiing and snowboarding, et cetera. Do I think it's going to be better or worse? I'm actually willing to say I think it's going to be better in 10 years. I think that, you know, if if what I'm seeing happening in the Gunnison Valley is an indicator, I think there's reason to be optimistic. Affordable housing is not going to be worse in 10 years than it is today. That's a prediction. You? You feeling gloomier than me? No. So... I just like the antidote that you bring up because you feel like you have good leadership there. And this brings me to kind of like my solution to this is just get involved in politics at a local level. Like, you know, we tend to focus on national politics as a culture and we tend to focus on presidential elections as a culture far, far greater. But when it comes to a president is going to have very little effect on our mountain town communities. Knowing who your supervisors are, knowing who your county representatives are, knowing who, if you're incorporated, your mayor is, and reaching out to them, I think is really critical to solving a lot of these issues. And government's going to move slow, they no matter what, but they're going to move faster at a local level anytime. Um, my solution here is, you know, the... North Lake Tahoe area, encompassing a lot of ski resorts and a, a lot of influx of visitors, is an unincorporated area. Like, I definitely think we should incorporate this into a town. When you look at what Truckee has been able to do when they incorporate it as their own little city, uh, own little town, um, they've been able to make massive infrastructure improvements and really invest in uh, affordable housing. Um you know, areas that are unincorporated, these ski towns, like we need to have more control over them and more say. Um, so I think like to people that see these problems, want to do something about them, just stop focusing on national politics and get involved with local politics. Like the one thing that's really good with local politics, and I found this, is like you can pick up the phone and actually talk to your supervisor. You can send them an email and get an email back from your supervisor. Um, like they they are listening. And if you have a lot of people or if you're a part of a, let's say, a backcountry ski club and you want to bring up issues, like if you're part of that club and you're emailing um, your local supervisor, 
they're going to respond because they know you represent a group of people. Um, so to me, it's just like this adaptation, um, these issues that ski areas and mountain towns being loved to death are going to be solved at the local level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Can we talk about bears, bears or something? What are we doing? Okay. Well, do we want to do, do we want to, do you want to talk about El Nino? Oh man. Can we let, no, I need, I need a, I need some Canadian news. I need a like palate cleanser here for just okay. a sec and then we'll come back. Okay. Well then here's a palate cleanser. So we'll get into the <laughs> most Canadian news, which uh, you drug up individually of me, but we both drug up the same article. And so, well, and actually I, I want to give a shout out to our listener, John Campbell, because John put this one on my radar and um, it's brought a lot of joy for me. So thank you, John. Continue, Cody. So this headline from the Toronto Sun is, quote, bears are built like a truck, BC cyclist <laughs> says after a crash. Just great headline. So uh, goes into what I think is the best part about this, because we talk a lot about wildlife in Canada. And so a cyclist running into a bear at this point of the cycle doesn't seem super surprising. No, no. But what I absolutely love is how this article was written. So let me just read this first paragraph. Vancouver lost another round with those big bad Bruins. And you're like, you're <laughs> kind of reading that going like, what are you talking about? No, we're not talking about the bitter NHL rivals who battled to the death in an epic Game 7 Stanley Cup final series in 2011. This time it was a North Vancouver cyclist who took a beating, which was much worse than the one the Canucks' Daniel Sedin was subjected to by Boston's Brad Marchand on the ice. Like, I, that is the most Canadian news lead I've ever read because I was like reading that going like, what the hell are they talking about? Like this big bad Bruins in Vancouver, like you have to be Canadian to appreciate that lead and understand it. So running into wildlife, hockey metaphors, just mm, Canada, you're doing it right. Canada. Yeah. There was another, another, more coverage of this, but that headline was, yeah, man T-bones bear while cycling. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, you know, you Canadians, watch out, watch out for the wildlife. You got to what? You have to dodge the football size. What kind of fish was it? Goldfish. The football size goldfish. You got, you know, your, your T-boning bears is like, it's just, yeah, it's uh it's, it's a, it's a place where yeah, you got to really watch out for the bears and the fish. What can I say? I want to say one thing about Canada that I learned on this trip to Baffin Island. So we flew from Yellowknife, which Yellowknife is near Great Slave Lake, which is in the Northwest Territories, which is weirdly named because it's not west of another province being the Yukon. So I don't it's like kind of like. One of those things like we call the Midwest being like Illinois, which I have an issue with because it's like not really that West. But anyways, Northwest Territories from Yellowknife to Baffin Island. We were on like a puddle jumper style plane. We had to uh, stop three times for fuel. The space, it was about two, a thousand mile flight. I forget exactly how long it was. But for nine hours of this flight, there is nothing. It is 
unbelievable the amount of space and land and lakes. Like we call Minnesota the land of like 10,000 lakes. This was the land of 10 million lakes. Like from Yellowknife to Baffin was the biggest expanse of unincorporated, non-human touch land I've ever seen in my entire life. It was baffling. Like it kind of thing is like this plane crashes like you're you're like if you survive the crash you are in so far away from anything there is no hope for you to walk out anywhere like you are really in the most middle of nowhere i've ever seen so um canada way bigger than i even thought i'm i'm mostly just impressed that you learned something new about canada because i think we've proven over the past months with our most Canadian news. I just, I thought we knew everything there was to know about Canada. Like, obviously. Yeah. So who knows? There's still small tidbits, even you and I, such experts on this, on this country, even things that you and I can still learn. Who would have thought? Yeah, totally. I know. It's really big. There's a lot of wildlife and they're really nice. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to go back to more depressing topics? Uh, yeah, we can buzz through this because I think this was just um, mainly, I think there's a lot of chatter these days if you follow like meteorology news that El Nino is coming and there's a 50-50 chance that there's going to be an El Nino this upcoming year. Um, and then a slight possibility of what they're calling a super El Nino. So they're pretty much ocean temperatures at record highs and they don't know how it's going to break, but this super El Nino, um, which is water temps of two degrees above average versus a normal El Nino, which is 0.8 degrees, could happen this year. And I just did some like kind of back end research on El Nino years and what they mean. The most frightening thing about it was that we've had three La Nina years in a row. And in those three years, we've set global records for average warmth with La Ninas. But the El Ninos in the past, especially the strong ones, have historically surged previous records for warmth. Um, in 1997 and 98, which was the last very, like, quite strong El Nino, um, here's some facts and data about that last El Nino. It caused 16% of the world's coral reefs to die. Air temps were warmer by 1.5 degrees Celsius. There was extreme rainfall in Somalia, Kenya, and California. Uh, there was 11, which is a, record, a record, super typhoons in the Pacific, and then two Atlantic Cat 5 hurricanes. So all I want to bring up is that if you're not following meteorology news, like this next fall and winter, if we're getting into El Nino territory and super El Nino territory, it could get really weird and really hot. Yes. So, yeah, there's not much to add on to that, but just being like, I don't know, like this goes into my overall thesis of kind of climate change is just like it almost shouldn't be called like... You know, it was global warming for a while, and then they realized, like, oh, it's effects in different ways. We call it climate change. To me, it's just, like, global weather weirding, because shit gets weird. And it's just, it's, we're not used to this. Yeah, maybe climate chaos is yeah. the better, because it's not just linear. It's not, we're not just getting warmer or just getting colder. It's just getting crazier. 
climate craziness, climate chaos. Yeah, there's certain areas in the world that is going to be just so insanely wet you, that it'll break records. And then other parts of the world will be colder. Other parts of the world will be drier. Other, It's just like, it's, you know, like things are just getting more extreme. Like the droughts are getting longer. The rainfalls are getting longer. The wind speeds get bigger. Like it's just, uh, I don't know. There's a, from the meteorological world, it seems like everyone's like, quite nervous which gives me a little bit of fear when you're seeing people that study this for a a living and are forecasting this are like putting kind of pretty dire predictions out there so um i just realized we've done a really good job in this episode of presenting positive of a topic and a negative of a topic (laughs) Like we did climate optimism, <laughs> climate pessimism. We did scary optimism, <laughs> scary pessimism. So I think we did our good job of for being actually fair and balanced. Maybe um, we're fair and balanced. Not, we're just yeah. like yeah, just like our we're just other like Fox news, news outlet. <laughs> totally, mm-hmm. we're, we're truly there. <laughs> that's that's the new tagline. Listen to Jonathan and Cody review the news in a truly fair and balanced way. Okay. All right, let's get into some mountain town advice. We've got quite a few questions. I know this topic, you really like this one. So we're going to start with this one. Douglas wrote and asked, how about the definition of a cabin versus a house, especially in ski towns? I need a third person to end an argument. Well, Douglas, I hope you're going to win some big bet. Uh, off Cody's answer here. But Cody, what do you have? Cabin versus a house? Well, yeah, this is kind of near and dear to my heart because as growing up as a weekend warrior, obviously having, I grew up in Santa Cruz, but we'd go up to Tahoe for the weekends to ski, which is very privileged. But I had a cabin that I grew up in. And I would frequently have other friends that were on like the ski race team or just like other friends that would be like refer to their second home as a cabin as well. I would go over to their houses and it'd be like a four bedroom, three bath, like bigger than my home in Santa Cruz style house. And I'd be like, this is not an effing cabin. Like this is a house. You live in a suburban track. And so I would always get kind of irritated. I was like, no, that is not a cabin. That is, you have a second home. Um, So to end your argument, I would just go to literally a definition I looked up. It's like, while a house, (laughs) so a cabin differs from a traditional house in size, materials, construction, location, and purpose. While a house is a family-occupied building in a neighborhood, a cabin is a small, simple wooden structure in a remote, wild area, mainly used as a temporary getaway accommodation. And I like the temporary getaway accommodation kind of the best because, yes, you can live in a cabin full time. Yes, you can use a mountain house as a temporary gateway uh, getaway accommodation. But ultimately, like the cabin that I grew up in, we didn't have potable water. We have to bring water up to our cabin in jugs. That is not a place you necessarily want to live in full time. <laughs> we heated our house with a wood stove 
we in the winter have to hike to our cabin. So to me, it's like you kind of got to be a remote and you kind of got to the, the cabin has to be a, in such a living condition where you're like, yeah, it'd be pretty hard to live here full time compared to modern amenities. So um, I don't know if that helps define kind of it for you, for the, the the reader that submitted this. But to me, like that definition between if you can just move straight into your mountain cabin and just live as normal as your other house, then it's a house. If you have to make sacrifices with basic living elements like electricity, um, driveways, water, and heat, then you it's a cabin. So um, too many people label their mountain towns as cabins. They're second homes. There you go. That's it. There's your answer. All right, moving on. This one from Jake. Hey, Jonathan and Cody, I've been listening for a few years now. By Cody's metrics, I must be listener number eight or nine. Congratulations, top top 10 original listener. Nice work. Anyways, this year I decided to take the winter off from my job and ski. I have spent the majority of it in Salt Lake. Normally, I'm a weekend warrior with at least one or two week trips. Uh, I skied over 20 days straight before taking a break and my legs were absolutely jello. Even taking off a few days didn't help much. I am a regular at the gym and occasionally run, but that had no impact on a long day of skiing. What do you guys do to prepare for the ski season? How do people ski all day, every day? Let me know, Jake. Cody? Good question, man. <laughs> I've been actually thinking about this recently because like I sit there and I'm like, man, when I was like 19, 21 years old, I would ski bell to bell every day and not feel a thing. And like nowadays you're like, I train harder than I've ever trained. I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life. And I go for a day at the ski area. I'm like, man, my legs are smoked. What the hell? So um, maybe be young. And I don't yeah. know how old don't, this uh, don't the, get older. The writers. Yeah, don't yeah. get old. Yeah. Um, but I will say there is one major thing I've found in the difference between how tired my legs are coming into the beginning of ski season and then getting them into shape um, through skiing. And it's counterintuitive. You kind of think like, oh, do squats and, you know, deadlifts and all these things to really strengthen your lower body because that seems like what you use most of it. But to me, when I was like maybe late 20s, what I found to prepare me the best for ski season was core workouts. Way, way, like way a huge focus on just on your core, on your back and your stomach. And because I've even realized this in more recent times with a lot of my training, so much of your balance is dealt with your core. And if you have a weak core, that's going to shift down to your legs more. And so like balancing it out and having a much stronger core will help you essentially shift your your ski experience and your physical exertion away from just your legs and more into your entire body. Um, but I do also think about it like I was skiing with Tom Day. Um, it's probably everyone remembers him from Blizzard of Oz, but he was also um, just a uh, he's a cinematographer for Warren Miller for the last like 25 years. And the guy skis every day. He's in his 60s and I was skiing with him. And one of the things I was skiing with him was like, 
he is so fluid and smooth in his ski technique that I feel like there's also just this, like, he skis every day, but is, like, the minimal amount of impact on his body. Um, I was following behind him because... I was trying to sniff out where some good snow was and I saw Tom and I'm like, Tom knows where the good snow is. And sure enough, I found Tom and he was lapping exactly where the snow was in perfect form. And um, the way he kind of moved through the terrain was just like much more like flowing water as opposed to quite often like how I like to ski at the ski area, which is like going fast and trying to like slam through moguls and using these new prototype skis, which are ridiculously stiff to their fullest extent, which makes meaning GS turns down mogul runs. And I'd get down to the bottom and my legs were smoked and watching Tom just like not even like take another breath of air after he gets down to the bottom and me kind of being like <sighs> realizing that like, you know, a lot of this comes back to just your technique and that like the 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 way you choose a line the 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 how you ski that line and that that technique that's refined over over a long long time so that's a big part mm -hmm. of it as well that's a, that's that part i completely agree with like if you're if you are like if you told me okay you have to ski 20 days in a row bell to bell I mean, we're, I know the question is about preparation, but that would actually be the thing. It's like, all right, I need to really think about the style. You can't just bash. I wouldn't be able to just bash my way around. Um, so I think that's a great point. But in terms of the preparation itself, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm open to the idea that I'm sort of stuck in my ways at this point. But I, it's just a fact that coming into a ski season, I do actually want to have like my barbell squat in a good place where there's a certain weight where if I'm doing reps, you know, at that weight for basically two sets, 10 reps, and I'm, I don't even want to say the number because it's all completely relative to each person, I want to have that metric in place because I feel like that signifies a degree of strength where, you know, when you do take the inevitable crashes, I feel like there's strengths that I've gotten used to over my life, a strength level where I've been lucky. I haven't had knee injuries, you know? And so I'm like, if I can kind of stay at this kind of level of strength in the barbell squat rack, that seems to be a decent indicator. I really like jump rope work, like fast jump rope work and doing even sets of like 60 seconds on fast, 30 seconds off, 60 seconds on, do that four or five sets several times a week. That in addition to the barbell squat being in a good place, those things are good. And then increasingly I am trying to run two to three times a week at that kind of five to six mile range. So if those three things are doing it for me, and I and I do a decent amount of, um, I guess to use your term, core work, where I'm really doing a lot with a strength ball or physio ball, getting a lot of back extension, a lot of back extension. So that one, I would probably need a visual to explain what I'm kind of doing on that front. But so I kind of agree with you in terms of strong abs, 
a lot of back extension, exercise, barbell squats in a good place, speed work on the jump rope, running a couple times a week, and I'm usually feeling pretty good coming into a season. I will say, even the years I trained the absolute hardest, though, I would always know the first few days of the year, there was nothing that can prepare you perfectly yeah. for skiing. Like, yeah. my back would be wrenched, my legs tired. Mm. And I do just think, like, skiing every day, your body starts to adapt to it. Like, um, and even at that lower technique, it brings me to this, like, the philosophy of the way I train these days, which is for much more aerobic capacity, but like that zone two low intensity sets you up to do it a ton. So ski lighter, ski every day, and you'll probably be able to kind of continue up and slowly build up those muscles and that fitness to ski hard when you need to, ski hard when you want to, and then come back and be recovered to go for the next day. Next one. I think we're going to do two more Mountain Town advice and then we're moving into the main event succession talk. Yeah. All right. This one comes from a guy named Cody of all things. Poor kid. Cody says, I'm on a high school ski race team that trains and races on Mount Hood. This season was great. And I was just four points away from going to state. But next year we are losing senior, some senior guys as it stands now. Next season, I will be the only guy racer. I could recruit a couple average skiers to come join the program, but if I do this, it means the team is eligible to qualify for state, and I am way more likely to qualify for state as an individual. I'm not worried about the social aspect of it because we have a larger girls team and we train and race with some other high schools. I just don't know if I should do what's best for the program and try to recruit some okay skiers, but demolish my chance of making state my senior year, or should I be the only guy racer and probably go to state? I can't decide, and so if you and Cody could give me some advice, that would be awesome. Thoughts, Cody? Yeah, um... This kind of applies, but also doesn't because of the the average gear thing. But whenever I get the question of like, how do I get better at skiing? My my advice is always ski with skiers that are better than you. So in this instance, obviously that's flipped. He's saying he wants to recruit people that are worse than him to join the team for kind of the good of the program. But I still think like it's better to have competition. Like, it's better to have people that are pushing you, even if they may be, as of right now, average skiers and you almost qualified for state. They could come in and start to push you. They could, you know, focus you. So my gut instinct is like, no, recruit people. It's good for the program and it'll be good for you. Like, one of the worst things you can do in sport is rest on your laurels. Like, it goes back to kind of like my competitive days of thinking about like, Every time I won a race or did good in a race, I didn't learn that much. But when I lost, when I failed, that's when I like refocused and changed the way I trained, changed the way I approached a race. I learned from it to get better. Failure is the absolute key to success of any sort of professional athlete or just athlete in general. So I would say like, Personally, if you're by yourself and not being pushed in training, you're not being pushed in small competitions, like I actually think you have less of a chance to make state. 
Like if you're if you're saying like in your mind right now, like I was just four points away. If I just continue what I did last year, then I'll make state. But like, if you just continue what you did last year, you means you're not going to improve. So having more people there to push you, even if they're average skiers and you're head and shoulders above them right now, they could get better. They could figure something out and all of a sudden beat you in a race and you're going to learn from that and get better. So I personally look at it as a thing like, no, like, Get those people in there because I think it'll personally increase your chances just from that like mental um, aspects of training and competition. I'm going to leave it at that from one Cody to another. All right, next one. Okay, this person writes, first of all, love all the advice y'all give out. I don't technically live in a mountain town, but I've got a relationship question for you. Oh, we're back in the relationship front, Cody. This is good. Score. I am an AFAM, assigned female at birth, non-binary queer person who dates all genders, but tends towards men due to there being more of them who are interested in outdoor activities. I live in a decently sized PNW city with lots of activity access close by, and I ski in bounds and backcountry, hike slash trail run, mountaineer, and rock climb all at a moderate level. I have friends within these activities, but would like to have a successful romantic relationship at some point as well. Finding people to date who like these activities isn't a problem. Finding a partner who matches my stoke, endurance level, and basic levels of safety, that has been an issue. So my question is this, how the heck do I find the men who are stoked on the mountains in a similar way? Are they all also sleeping alone in their cars at trailheads listening to the Blister podcast? Thanks. All right. Well, I sure hope they are. That sounds yeah, like right? an awesome time. Yeah. <laughs> just, uh, you know, sleeping in your car and listen to us blabber about nothing. But um, there's it was a very long email. And so you necessarily kind of skip. But I'll sum up what they said um, in these three scenarios. So men seem to go one of the three ways when we start dating. So they present um, that they go down the dirtbag route, but then want to change them. Um, they match my physical ability, but then are intimidated by them. Um, they give initial impression of knowing what they're doing, but then is pretty are pretty inexperienced. Um, so, which is a very typical scenario, and I think in all dating, and I think in mountain towns, and we kind of see this sort of scenario play out in many different ways. My first instinct, and I don't want this to come off as as poor or anything, but um, maybe they should be more interested in women because these seem like all toxic traits of men in general. <laughs> like just, I just, you know, it's like when we're trying to change like the, the, some of the flaws of, of men when it comes to sports and outdoor activities, wanting to change people over extending their own abilities or overestimating their own abilities and or being intimidated. Um, I will say one of the things, though, that I feel like I've seen in mountain towns is that these sort of issues present generally in younger men and start to work themselves out as they get older. Uh, younger men, and we all have it. Um, this has been a topic of conversation through this whole winter for kind of 
random reasons, but ego, which I think is at the root of these three scenarios, tends to be at its strongest point in men's 20s. And whether that's ego because they believe in themselves to be great, or whether they're self-conscious about their own issues, or whether they just naturally are very ego-driven in general. Like, men go, men's egos are strong. And I feel like having that sort of ego presents itself in such toxic ways in relationships, both in friendship and partnership. And what I tend to see is like, as men get into their 30s, they kind of become more comfortable with who they are. And they tend to, I don't know, settle down when it comes to this ego stuff. And they start to see people for where they are and start to see things in lenses that aren't so egocentric. So I don't know the age of this person. I don't know if that has anything to do with that. They may be talking about middle-aged men in general, but I do think with age, these things tend to work themselves out because I sit there and I think about ego-driven men and I think about myself in my 20s and like having those same sort of things of being like, yeah, you want to prove to the world who you are, your athletic achievements, you're, you're competitive, you can out-cycle someone, you can out-ski someone. I don't know why we're driven like that. I don't know what it is in human nature that kind of wants to do that. But I do know through time, through becoming more comfortable with who I am, I've like, that ego has started to fade. I mean, it's always present. I think it's anyone that says they go without ego is completely lying to you. But like, that just doesn't drive me like it used to. And I think younger men, it drives them far more than they understand. So my, I guess my two advices is either you, if you have an open dating pool, maybe uh, start dating a few more women. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's a good benefit or wait till they get older. <laughs> There it is. Uh, yep. Wait 10 years or yeah, g- give up on, on dudes because we're, we're all a mess. Um, many of us are a mess. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's hear your like more, more intelligent take. Oh, on no, this I, no, I got, no, I believe me, uh, whatever I'm about to say, I'm, I'm not willing to say this. Here's the more intelligent response, but Maybe, maybe actually it is because we actually did talk about this on a, a previous uh, Mountain Town Advice segment. I still am a real big fan of not having to have your partner be your number one person to go do all of this outdoor stuff, I, I very much believe like it's impossible. It's literally impossible for one person to be everything to all of us. And I'm not saying that this person is making that mistake, but I think we all need to remind ourselves of that. And I think the idea of having a number of friends who you, maybe those are some of your hiking trail running friends. Maybe you have a different group that are kind of in your close-knit circle of ski friends, you know, or whatever. I think that's healthy. And um, 
I understand the impulse to want to go do all this stuff together, but I think I think being able to say, hey, um, this weekend I'm going to go out with you know these two or three folks and we're going car camping and your partner isn't that into that. And so they're like, cool, you go do your thing. What I, what I really like about this actually is one, you avoid the problem of sort of moving into this world of trying to make one person be all things to you. But the second thing, I think there's a nice test of are you in a relationship that honors independence, right? Because I've been in some that I would not say we're that stoked on, you know, a weekend away. And, you know, whether that raises trust issues or a kind of codependence thing, maybe the idea where it's like, is my partner somebody who actually is fine with having me go do this thing? Am I fine with them going to do this other thing? You know, I, I want personally that kind of trust and independence in a relationship. What do you think about them apples, Cody? I think you summed it up way more yes. intelligently than yes. I did. <laughs> I am the relationship advice expert. Yeah, I think you are. Probably because I've been removed <laughs> from the relationship and dating for like 20 years now. Okay. But I'm like very, I'm just trying to observe what my friends do. But most of my friends are married and with kids at these points. So, um, but uh, no, it's a very good point. I think there's this like romanticism about your partner being your everyday outdoor partner. And the fact is like Elise and I, like we ski together all the time. We mountain bike together, but we also do our own things together. Um, I, I've gotten into trail running, at least hates trail running, you know, we, so I go trail running. She definitely does not. Um, so there's this thing of like, maybe from the outside, we present as partners that do everything together, but in reality we don't. So this, uh, this ideal of living up to that person being your everyday backcountry ski activity partner is probably far more of a myth than a reality. So also, it goes back to the readers or the the writers uh, kind of point is like, yeah, there's also something that within yourself that you need maybe need to look at in this in this relationship kind of advice. One other thought, though, I mean, maybe you do the next time you're sleeping alone in your car at the trailhead, you just go knock on the windows of all the other cars and just ask the people are you listening to the blister podcast? Because if they answer yes, I mean, that's like 90% there. Like you are, you are almost certainly a match made in heaven. And, uh, you know, so that, that would be the other tip. Just, we really should, we should make that a thing, Cody. We, we need people to just the new pickup line in mountain towns you just walk up to somebody and you're like, do you listen to the blister podcast? (laughs) Hey, uh, (laughs) We're going to, we're going to bring, we'll bring 100 people together 50. or 50. Wait, I can't do math. Yeah. A total of 50 new relationships. That's assuming though, that our hundred listeners are all single, which they might be. They might actually all be sleeping alone at, in their cars at trailheads. I don't we, know. Well, there's only one way to know is we, we got to hear reports of people's <laughs> findings of knocking on people's doors, sleeping in their cars and asking, are you currently listening to reviewing the news? Okay. So, um, all right. 
that's it for this edition of Mountain Town Advice. Here's the deal. We're going to talk about succession a little bit. I think, though, this could turn into a six-hour conversation because, you know, we missed last month. But here's, like, here's the thing. We have one episode to go, right? One episode to go in the entire show. So maybe with that in mind, we don't have to feel like we, we will re- try to resist the temptation to talk for an hour right now about succession because we'll then, you know, let it wrap. We'll digest. I'm sure there will be many text exchanges. But then our next reviewing the news, we can talk in a broader way about the show, perhaps. What do you think? I'm just trying to figure out how we don't go into like two hours here on Succession. Um, yeah, me too. But I did have someone on Twitter. I was sourcing like, hey, what's some like news articles we should uh, uh, talk about? And someone said, just do an hour and a half on Succession. And I was like, done. <laughs> 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 I know, but we but we just did an hour not on succession. So um no, all right, well, let's just go. Let's let's so see what we got. Spoilers ahead. So just if you haven't watched up until the the penultimate as- episode of succession, like stop listening now because we will discuss about it. Um, you know, I the main thing I would want to say of watching this season is that I think a lot of media types, a lot of people that are obsessed with this show like we are, have been wondering how they're going to land this plane. Like, we know this was the last season of it. So you're expecting, you're like, how are they going to land this? How is this going to wrap up? What is the thesis? And my main takeaway is that when I started to figure out kind of what I thought the thesis of this show was, and I'm like, okay, they are doing a really good job at landing this plane of explaining this this kind of central point of the show, which in my opinion was sort of a critique on capitalism and based upon this thing of like extreme capitalism or late stage capitalism destroys like it destroys family it destroys love it it is a thing that at its most furthest edges is inherently toxic that's what i was kind of like all right this is what the thesis of the show is this last episode this penultimate episode took that and just elevated it one more level. And I was like, God, just when Jesse Armstrong, the writer of the show, I thought couldn't do a better job, he took it to a place that I wasn't even expecting. And it really came from Kendall's eulogy of uh, at, at his father's funeral. And I was just like blown away. And that was like my main takeaway. It was like, oh, wow, I thought I figured the show out. And of course, I didn't because this man, Jesse Armstrong, is a very brilliant human and is one of the best writers we have in storytelling right now. Yeah, for sure. Do you want to say more about Kendall's eulogy? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess to expand upon it, like what I thought when I was saying to this 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 thesis of like capitalism destroys destroys things we cherish like family and love and friends and you become alone on an island like Logan was um, with like a withering mess of the people around him just like cowering in his fear. And he he ultimately he dies alone in a bathroom. And most people, as you can see from this, were in fear from him. And that was a main tape topic of the eulogy. But Kendall's speech took it from that level and went to this thing of like, no, 
Logan wasn't inherently evil because he was a ruthless capitalist. He's just perfecting what system humans have created. And it went to this whole message of like, this isn't a thing about an individual and his family. This is a critique of the systems that humans have created for ourselves. He just does it better than other ones. He took it to this macro level of like, kind of like humans are kind of inherently selfish and evil. And Logan was just more selfish and more evil than most. And he wasn't bound by morality. He wasn't bound by family. He wasn't bound by love. And that's what just made him better than what at everyone else at this thing that we have created. Um, he knew people is kind of a lot of the, the the message of this last season. He he looked at people as a market and people responded to him like a market. And he made a lot of money off of people being a market. And so it was kind of this thing. I was just like, yeah, taking it from this like individual man and individual family and making it seem like he was evil. And it was just like, no, he's just perfected this system that we have created, whether you can call that capitalism, we can call that media, whether you can call that entertainment, whatever it is, he just, he's doing it better. And like, I don't know, it was like really powerful, his eulogy. And I think that eulogy being very focused on just like acknowledging what a brute he was and how feared Logan was, but that he built things, he made things, he, he, did what humans are supposed to do. He just did it better than everyone else, and that has created the mess around him. This is the greatest show to ever be on television. That's where I want to start, and I know we can talk about that in a minute. I'm not sure if you're all the way there with me. The writing is completely extraordinary. I've been saying this. You have not disagreed, to be clear. Every scene deserves to be taken apart and considered and studied, frankly. Um, that eulogy speech, I mean, the the scene at the, you know, at the graveyard, the mausoleum, that is brilliant. This brilliant four to five person dialogue with the the siblings interacting and and um you know, their relationship to one another, them trying to process their relationship with their now deceased father. I mean, it's so, so top tier. And that's why, again, I, it, it, it feels like, like sacrilegious or flippant to say it, but I'm just like, this is modern Shakespeare. It just is. And I have never watched a TV show that has had me feeling that way, thinking that way, episode after episode after episode in the way that this has, it is stunning. So that, that, that's one. I think the other thing is, I don't know that I've ever felt this way about any of the other great TV shows, and we might mention a couple of the contenders here. Every time I get done with an episode of Succession, I'm like, we're just watching like the greatest play. It's a play ever with the highest production budgets and the rest. 
But effectively, this just has been a, I don't know what the complete running time of the show now is, 10-ish episodes over four seasons. So it's like a 40-hour play. And I think the development, when you're now talking about systems, systems in place, that's what you were just talking about with Logan. I mean, yes, there is that. But this show started basically with this beast of a man, Logan Roy, and his three or three and a half bumbling kids. And just watching, it kind of started with like, you know what's kind of a curse to be born the children of a multi-billionaire? It's like if you want to be a completely dysfunctional human being, also, you know, the mother where there's incredible scenes with her and Shiv in this, right? Where they talk about literally, they're like joking about, you know, the mother is like saying to Shiv, I didn't see this coming that you would ever be pregnant. And Shiv's like, well, I'm just planning to have a, you know, adopt the same mothering style that we grew up with, which is no have no mother present. And Shiv jokes, she's like, "That's you don't think that's going to lead to any like stunted development, do you? And it's like, we're just watching at a, it's, it's not just one thing that the show is doing, right? It is talking, it is looking at sibling dynamics. It's looking at when you have screwed up parents um, who only care about power plays and the next, getting the next deal done, how dysfunctional this can be when you don't model any type of love or demonstrate any type of love to young children. Look what they grow up to be. It's it's hitting so many different notes, right? I think what is so fascinating to me, though, of, of many things that we can be fascinated by at this point in the show is this development of Kendall, right? And where we're actually, he's gone from being a complete bumbling moron to what we're seeing now is he is kind of making this turn. He is actually like stepping into and filling his father's shoes. And just before we started recording, I think you had a really, you nailed it with a text you sent me. Um, you want to, I'll let you take it from here, but talking about the killer that his father was. And was always disappointed that Kendall wasn't that killer. Yeah, I texted you as we were going back and forth, uh, being all excited about Succession, that his dad wouldn't let him be a killer, where at the same time he was grooming him to be a killer. And that's like one of the more, you know, Kendall is kind of the central character of the show, even though what I've really found fascinating was like the episodes after Logan's death, like the show in a certain way felt a little bit rudderless, even though it wasn't. It just had this sensation because you're like, this man was so powerful that these people are just mm-hmm. all yeah. over the place. Like they have no yeah. no clue whether that's yeah. the family, whether that's the, the the executive staff. It was just like nobody knows what to do. And it felt rudderless without him. Yet as we're watching Kendall, he's stepping into this role of his father said it to, I think it was in the penultimate episode of season two, saying you're not a killer. And then he goes on to go on national TV and try to kill his own dad. And then his dad still wins because he's unbelievably powerful and ruthless and way smarter than Kendall. But in that time, 
he's been grooming him to be the killer. And that's what we're seeing right now is Kendall step in to be his father, perpetuating the sins of his father. And this whole episode, this whole thing when it comes to family, like there's so many through line stories like you're talking about. Like we haven't even talked about Tom and Shiv, which is an incredible story in its own. But like one of the main thesis of it is even though I was saying like kind of capitalism destroys love, capitalism destroys family is kind of a central thing that brings this whole show together. One of the things that the line that Kendall asked Shiv are going, does the poison drip through? And like, we know as viewers, as he asks Shiv that, that we're like, yes, yes, it does. 100% because we've been watching it for four seasons of the poison drip through and these people take on characteristics of their toxic family. Kendall is turning into his dad. Shiv is turning into his mom. And Roman is emotionally completely incapacitated by the, the death of his father. And that scene where the, in America decides he goes on to pretty much try to forcibly elect Jared Menken, a fascist character, and pretty much tells, like, his family, like, fuck the people. And then in this episode nine, steps in front of the people to get his ass kicked, like, voluntarily goes out there to get punished for who he is in a certain way was like that kind of how they balance it out. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, too, there's so many different they mirror a lot of things within this series. Like in as uh, it's season three, when Kendall is face down in the water and almost drowns, and we, you know, there's a debate of whether he was dead or not. And then after this board speech where he unsurprisingly did an incredible job, the end of the episode, he's laying in the water face up. And it's kind of the, the yeah, they like, mirror these things and that was to me the mirror between roman as well and um that mirror between shiv his own her own mother in season two or season three saying like you know your dad just talking about the toxic family and not you shouldn't have kids and now she has a kid and it's just mirroring back to like shiv's gonna be a mom in search of this power and it's just like jesus christ this is yeah like i I, it's just it's all shakespearean because it's has these very very big topics of love family and modern day capitalism which it wasn't a topic of old shakespearean but like comes into this in such a unique way like yeah it's a brilliant show i'm so Back to your point of, like, you you think it's number one. I'm not ready to go there. I'm going to wait for the last episode to drop. And I want to give it a while, probably do a rewatch, because this is a really rewatchable show. My personal still favorite show of all time is The Wire. And it's for different reasons. If this steps in front of it, it could, for sure. It's definitely already top three. Um but uh, it, it it's brilliant in its own way. I still think like The Wire was like, for its time, was so, so shocking and so different than was out there that its impact on the golden age of TV will like never be more apparent. And I think The Wire, Succession is a direct descendant of The Wire, in my opinion. Because you're going into a wor- going into a world that we don't know much about and kind of exposing it to a lot of people. Totally fair. 
by the way, I love The Wire, but The Wire didn't tempt me to do an actual literal line reading of every single episode and do that again and again and again. You know what I mean? So I think given how much I care about great writing, the words, the words of this show is what just completely is knocking me out. I I watched John Wick, the first one last night. Like I can get down with a movie that is absolutely not about amazing dialogue, you know, but in this case, but that's why I'm not tempted to call. I'm not sitting here continuing to like think about um, Jesse Armstrong as kind of our modern Shakespeare or to use a more modern playwright like Tom Stoppard is, you know, regarded as one of the great playwrights of the last hundred years. I think Jesse Armstrong is on that level. And that's while the world built around the wire is incredible, you know, was and is incredible, it's different. And um, I so I think given given that love and appreciation of writing and and words, that's why this pushes it for me. You know, Break, Breaking Bad is still a show that I completely love. At no point did I really think of that show as being this extended play. It was phenomenal. And Walter White, I mean, man, we want to talk about most iconic characters in television history. He, you know, Brian Cranston's Walter White has to be in the running. Um, but this is just hitting in a different way for me. Um, and the complexity and the dynamics and what's going on. And as I, a point I made um, some time ago on reviewing the news, Jesse Armstrong is doing this without violence, without a bunch of nudity, without all the like the easy things, like the condiments, you know, that just kind of are in a way can kind of now like come off as cheap. There's no 3D dragons flying around, breathing fire and taking out cities, you know. So he's doing it without all of the CGI, you know, and the, and the things that are kind of the cheap tricks uh, to get people excited about the show. There's no zombies running around eating other people's brains, right? Yeah, there's no bag of fake meth that you turned into a bomb to explode stuff, which was like a, you know, in Breaking Bad was such a like amazingly fun scene to watch as he overcomes this crazy meth head narco guy. And so, yeah, there I, I agree with that. And I, you know, it's like to me, if you're looking at this from a writing perspective, uh, what is said on camera and the acting, it is unquestionably number one, in my opinion. But when it comes to personal preferences, storylines you go into, that's where you can have debate and personal preference in general. For me, still, The Wire was so exposing to a world that I had no exposure to that was so mind-opening, like David Simon being a reporter and knowing the world of Baltimore so, so deeply was like, it was just, it felt like the best news article I've ever read in a very highly entertaining character-driven story about a town and what was ultimately about a town about uh, a story about systems uh systems of inequality systems of of uh violence and systems of drug use and all that kind of stuff and this is a systems of love family it's like almost the opposite end of the wire <laughs> like the people that create these systems and the shit that the the byproducts of that from a 
I'm money doesn't matter because I'm so wealthy. Um, so yeah, no, it's like, there's not, not enough good things to say about succession. I'm like, I'm really, really happy because I'm going, I'm leaving on an expedition, second one of the year on Monday, <laughs> which means that Sunday I get to tune in for the last episode. If I had to be on a mountain I would, and being like, knowing like what happened, what happened, what happened? I'd be so bummed sitting up there for a month being like, God, if I could just download Succession on my like inReach and watch it right now. <laughs> we'll we'll wrap up here in a second, but one I actually cannot fathom that there's only one episode to go. I I feel like there's still so much that we could be doing and unpacking with these characters and and these plot lines. I have not read it. I'm curious whether you have. Have you heard this thing that Kieran Culkin apparently in an interview this past week said that um, Jesse Armstrong laid out for Kieran and maybe the whole cast the plot lines for a fifth season if they were mm, to do it. I did not read that. No. Had you heard this? Yeah, I promise you can look this, this up. I, I've kind of chosen. I don't know that I want to know. I just want to like go in. I don't want to know anything about that in before watching the quote unquote final episode. But um man, I'm I'm currently finding it astonishing that that they're not running this back at least for a fifth. I I, I just have to think the amount of money that Jesse Armstrong turned down by not like how much would HBO be like, dude, come on, let's just go one more season. And if Jesse already had some directions for what he would do with a fifth season, so I, I respect the hell out of the decision to walk away when an author feels like it's done and turn down what I just assume is a bunch of money to, to do it. But it's it's pretty fascinating. This is not something we see, not something we see much of where something that is so good and it doesn't sound like Jesse's out of ideas and the cast wants to come back. They're not running it back and pretty wild. Well, I mean, there's certain things that as a TV season, if they were being like, okay, let's stretch this out to eight seasons, they wouldn't have been able to do this year. There are certain relationships, there are certain things that just like are unmendable in a certain way. So it goes into this thing where like you kind of have to do it and Upon rewatch, I remember having this before we the season four came out was like when I rewatched the first three seasons, I was like, oh, yeah, like we're starting to see just like the cyclical up and down nature of these siblings fighting for power. And to do that for eight seasons, I think would start to drag on and we would really lose this, the, the, the drama of it all. I'm not arguing for eight, but we have one episode to go. And so to to go and it now and I think Jesse's such a good writer right now. I'm like, just one more season, Jesse. And then probably after the fifth, I'd be like, just just one more season, Jesse. And that's, again, the power of like a master writer. But um, I, I think you're right about that's why I'm not interested in the indefinite series. But one more there's just no question. This dude is so good. And the cast is so incredible. So I don't mean to like diminish the, the actors or the performances, but um, this, this is number one with a bullet for me. 
all time. So I know you there you hate the topic of like the we've gone back and forth on this who's going to win you know who's like the 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 sports analogy that we see you know both of us listens to like Bill Simmons and like Simmons kind of goes on to that and those those uh his two compatriots in the prestige TV pod always play that and they're always like uh, they kind you can tell how annoyed they are that taking this sports mentality of who's going to win but to end of this podcast maybe this end would who on do you think is going to win from an acting perspective? Who is going to emerge from this show as a major star in movies and TV for the for a long time? Because that question is like, to me, actually a good question because TV is one of these things like, are we ever going to be able to separate Roman and Kieran Culkin? Are we ever going to be able to separate um, the, you know, Kendall and Jeremy Strong? Are like, are they so ingrained in our mind right now? Like, Brian Cranston at this point is kind of Walter White. He's done some movies outside of it, but it's still, it's really hard to step away from. Um, but who do you think would be the most successful actor, actress coming out of this series? I'm, I love this question because I hate the other question. I thought like the who who wins the show type of thing, like, no, wrong way. To, that's just like, as you know, I think that's a messed up way of thinking about this show. But who will actually go on to sort of have the... And we'll look at this in terms of, um, you know, uh, reputation as an actor, box office success, those metrics. <sighs> all right. I have not thought about this before, but my top three would be Kieran Culkin. I, I think he's amazing. Jeremy Strong, clearly amazing. We've heard a bit of the backstory that he can apparently be a handful to work with, and maybe he's maybe that will affect directors or other actors not begging to work with him. I do not know. But then where where my heart is would be with Tom. Tom it speaks to the show. I was about to say, Tom is the best actor on this show. And that you can't even say it because what Jeremy Strong is doing with Kendall is remarkable. I think Kieran is remarkable. There's a number of performances that are flat out remarkable. We're not even talking about Brian Cox as Logan. So I don't know that Matthew McFadden is going to be in the like leading man making many millions of dollars to go, you know, lead a film. I'm not he's more of a character actor. I think he is all time good. So who might in terms of box office success, you know, payroll, the vote would be for me it's going to be Jeremy Strong or Kieran Culkin. How about for you? Yeah, so for for me it's Matthew McFadden and Jeremy Strong, but with a close like right in there Sarah Snow could play Shiv. Because I, I actually kind of think Sarah Snook, in my opinion, I almost think she is the best actress. Her facial expressions are mm. the best of anybody. Yeah, are wild. Like, the way she can have this, like, multiple emotions in one look, I'm like, God, that's so good. But to me, like, Kieran Culkin, actually, like, he's kind of Kieran Culkin. And he's played the, uh, not this character, but similar characters. Like, it kind of has a similarity to Igby Goes Down, um, Kieran Culkin. So I can see him being kind of Kieran Culkin for the rest of his career. And that's the hard part, where I think Jeremy Strong has leading man potential. And I think Matthew McFadden 
I see him as a bad guy in a superhero movie, like, in an instant. I see him being a character actor in Oscar-nominated films easily. I see his versatility almost better than anyone else. But also, I think Sarah Snook, like, I I don't know, I'm most drawn to her acting ability because of her able, her facial expressions. But it's also going to be really hard to separate her from Shiv. I feel that way. She's that character is also annoying the hell out of me this season, which is exactly what they're supposed to do. It's that's right. Exactly. That's exactly right. And uh, dude, can we just talk about the scene that lasts five seconds where she grabs the champagne or the wine in this last episode, (laughs) takes a sip in front of Tom And Tom clearly is like, wait, you're pregnant with my child and you're drinking? And then she like, she leans in, stares him dead in the face and takes a longer drink. And says, it's fine. It's fine. It's it's just, dude, it's just, these are knife fights. They're straight knife fights, (laughs) you know? With the the (laughs) drinking of champagne was just this like, oh my God, tense moment. It was, a, like you said, it's a knife fight of taking a sip of champagne back and forth and them saying like five words to each other and repeating what they say. Like, it's fine, it's fine. I know, I know, it's okay, it's okay. Like, you're like, oh my God. So anyways, we probably lost about three quarters of our <laughs> listeners by now, no. an hour and 40 in. No, they're, but... they're all hanging in there. They're all alone in their cars at the trailheads and they're just like, thank God these guys are still going and, and we still have some some more stuff for for you know for me to be listening to right now until somebody you know knocks on their door and is like are you listening to reviewing the news and then they go live ha- happily ever after so perfect. see we're out here helping the people cody perfect mm. hey man good stuff so um th- i mean this sucks though because now reviewing the news is a whole month away succession will actually be over by the time this airs that's the world is we're a little off here. I don't know. We might need to do an emergency. Maybe there's an emergency reviewing the news. Are you going to re- rent a sat phone for me so I'm on Mount St. Elias? <laughs> I can call in on it like with raging winds around me from my tent going like that episode was amazing. I thought it was. No, I think it was good. If we'll have time to digest, people have time to, to digest. digest us. Thoughts are always good. We're trying not to, you know, be super reactionary, even though I'll probably try and download every single podcast known to man that talks about succession and try and listen to it while I'm hiking up Mount, Sh- Mount St. Elias. But ultimately, I think for us, digesting it, thinking about it. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you in June once I hopefully get off that mountain. <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, good luck with everything. And uh, yeah, we will uh, we'll be in touch. Sounds good. See you, Jonathan. All right, man. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I'm going to say thanks to Cody for another good conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening and for all of your good questions. Keep your questions coming You can DM them to us on the social medias, or you can send us an email at info at blisterreview.com. But we love hearing from you and doing our best to offer our best, shiniest two cents. Other than that, don't forget to sign up for our Blister Summit. 
early bird pricing ends this Thursday, June 1st. You can get a ton of information about the summit online on our website, and we will include a link to that information in the show notes of this episode. And that, my dear friends, is all. I hope you have a great week, and we will talk to you again real soon.